This morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. And the last time we covered only 10 verses, the first 10 verses. It just was so powerful. It's about salvation. It's important doctrinal statement. We don't work our way to heaven. God has given us this gift of eternal life. We believe, we trust in what the Lord did, and we have salvation, which is an awesome thing. You know, this is something that, it, it, you know, you, you kind of look at, and unfortunately, there's a lot of religions that teach a lot of things. Some religions, it's a board game. You know, you, you get closer to your salvation, then you do something wrong, you take some steps back, then you give some money or say some types of prayers, then you get forward again, and then things set. It's just weird, quite frankly. The Bible is truth. The Bible teaches us that we cannot work our way into heaven. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot pay it back. It's a priceless gift. Think about it, eternity. So today, we're going to look at something a little bit different as the Apostle Paul continues. We're going to look at unity. We're going to look at the fact that as he speaks, we can almost see why he's speaking to the Ephesians in this manner. It does appear that the Ephesians were negatively influenced by the world at the time, by Ephesus. It was a seat of wealth, idolatry, you know, everything that you could imagine at that time was in Ephesus. This could have been written yesterday to us, because in 2015, there's also many Christians that are negatively affected by the world. We live in the greater New York area. People are making money. People are getting degrees. These things aren't bad. However, that's not the goal. The things that we, we, we have and that we can do and we can get here only last as long as we live. And if we don't have eternal life, well, there's a problem when we die and we go to stand before the Lord. So you can see the possibility that there was some pride issues in the Ephesians and, and really there's some pride issues in the church today. So the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about unity and I'm going to look at it and break it up into pretty much, there's only um, 11 verses that we're going to cover this morning. I'm going to break it up into three sections. Uh, it would be reconciliation, restoration, and then rebuilding, the three R's. So let's check it out, see what he's saying here. Starting with verse 11, I'll read through it first, and then we'll break it down. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, there's a connecting word from what we spoke about, salvation is a gift, two Sundays ago. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, many of the Ephesians were more Gentile Christians than Jewish believers, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross." thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
in whom you are also being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. So in a nutshell, it's my job to break it down. I actually read this a few times. It's just so much, it's so deep, it's so intricate. How do we break it down? Well, in a nutshell, God did two things. He reconciled lost sinners to himself. He also reconciled lost sinners to lost sinners. And sometimes we have trouble with that part. Even as believers, we still have disputes with other people. We still, people get on our nerves. We have issues. But God says that if we really love him, we can't say that we hate our brother or sister. So sometimes the easy thing is being reconciled to God, but sometimes people to people is where the rub is. Now, in this case, he speaks about Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were pretty much non-Jews. So that's, the world was almost divided into two classes. Today, we have a lot more division in the world. We'll talk about that, too. But once the, this reconciliation, restoration, and rebuilding process happens, and we build, or that spiritual house is built with Jesus as the cornerstone and God dwelling inside of it, and this is figuratively, but it's also literally, then the works or the fruit can begin to occur. Psalm 23, 6 says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in the Old Testament, New Testament, the, the idea was to get closer to God. How do we do that? God sent his son in the fullness of time to die for our sins. Revelation 21 tells us that, that God will uh, dwell among his people. He will dwell among his people. He will dwell with his people. There's this closeness you know, we, we're close to God right now in prayer. You know, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that God has encouraged you and ministered to you. Well, there's going to be another layer of closeness when we either pass away or the Lord comes back for his people. That's an exciting thing. So this isn't it. It's good. It's, it's great to be a Christian. But a lot more is coming that we're going to be blessed with, being a part of God's house. Now, I just want to do some terminology before we continue, because for some that maybe are not used to the Bible, they don't understand the terms. So the first one, uncircumcision versus circumcision. And that basically was the Jewish males were circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And Gentiles, for the most part, were not. So there was a physical indicator of what separated the uh, Gentile males from the Jewish males. Two, Jew versus Gentile. Again, the Jews were God's covenant people up to the first century. And he still has agreements with them. He still has, we still see Israel in prophecy. He's not done with Israel. But they were supposed to bring the Gentiles to the monotheistic God. Gentiles, for the most part, were polytheists. They believed in two or more gods. And some could be in Hinduism, could be actually today into the millions of gods. So many gods, you can't keep track of them. So the Jewish people were supposed to take the Gentiles' understanding away from their false god system, their pantheon of gods, and bring them to the understanding of the true monotheistic God. In a lot of ways, they failed. So the Messiah had to come and bring his other flock. Jesus often spoke about you know, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and then speaking about another flock that he had to bring into so the two would be one. An indication or a, a signaling, a harbinger of the Gentiles coming into the fold. Three, let's, look, let's talk about today. Christians in this dispensation are God's covenanted people through God the Son, through Jesus Christ, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And I love that. Today, even in our church, for our size, we have a lot of Jewish believers. 
and we all fellowship together. Nobody sees really the difference. However, they still have a Jewish background. So Jews and Gentiles have come together under the umbrella of Christ so that we can worship together and be, as the Bible says, as one, not separated anymore. When we look at the church today, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's a lot of division. And I'm going to say this again, but why is it that we in the church, when we look at the aggregate church, people call themselves Christians, all different types of ministries, why do we separate or segregate each other when God has called us to be unified? And I'll talk about that a little bit more. So let's start with the first point out of the three, reconciliation. Take the politics or the emotions out of it, but the progressive mind must legislate people coming together and seeing each other and treating each other as equals and not discriminating. The problem with that is sin. Sinful man, the natural man, looks in the mirror and says, I'm whatever. Male, female, white, black, red state, blue state, Jew, Gentile, whatever the case may be. The natural man sees himself or herself in the mirror and says, I'm superior. So we, we have legislation on the book so that we treat each other equal even though we look different from each other. However, the Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, doesn't need that legislation. Because the Christian answers supposed to to a higher authority where God says you must be unified. Yes, you'll look different. But you all have hearts beating. You're all breathing. You're all from you know, the original family. God says that I created. So guess what? Get along with each other. And sometimes that's where the rub is. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. If you ever look at a mosaic of pretty stones or glass or tile... You see a beautiful, some pictures are so beautiful, they're so huge. And when you get up really close, one tile may be brown, one may be green, one may be yellow. But when you step back, it paints a beautiful picture. What if all the tiles were green? It would be a big green blob. What if you closed your eyes right now and you thought, okay, everyone in this church right now looks exactly like me? That would be weird. If I closed my eyes and opened my eyes and there was a whole bunch of Joe DeProsimos, I might get scared. You know, might freak me out a little bit. What God asks us to do is not always an easy thing, but it's the right thing. And a lot of things that God asks us to do, we really can't do unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We work together. Yes, we have even rich poor. We have different, come from different socioeconomic classes. But... We come from different ethnicities. We come from different you know, colors. But we work together to build this house that the Lord is speaking about. We look around in our church and we see diversity. It's not forced. It's not advertised. It's not legislated here. It just happens. People come in. They sense that the Holy Spirit is a part of it. They like the church. And you know what? We learn to get along and treat each other as family. Uh, I really enjoyed that two Sundays ago we had a Jewish preacher come up here and show us the Messiah and the Passover. He showed us through the... And I tell you what, I had a lot of Gentile Christians come up to me afterwards and say to me, wow, that was awesome. That's a perspective I never knew before. So we enjoy what he showed us because we're not... A lot of us aren't from that background. Next Sunday, oh, I can't wait. We have missionaries that we support all around the globe. We have one missionary group that is... Well, we have a few of them that's from Africa, they're going to come back and tell us about what God is doing in Africa. And to many of us, it's foreign to us. 
different culture, different language, different foods. But the Christians there are going through a lot of persecution. And I told them, bring it. I said, don't, don't be limited. Tell the body what they're supporting in Africa. And a lot of it is war-torn Africa, Sudan and so forth. It's tragic, but the Lord is still doing amazing things inside that country. So we get a taste of different flavors, of different mosaics, something that may be not our culture or our background. I want to read to you Galatians 3, 28. Because the Apostle Paul says this repeatedly, this picture of unity. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your differences because your differences don't really mean anything. That's my paraphrase. Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There you go. There's our marching orders. Sometimes I'm going to throw out my opinion up here. Take it with a grain of salt. It's just my opinion. When I talk to you about the word, pay attention to that. My opinion is I don't like ministries where people come together and they purposely are exclusionary. And they say in their hearts or outrightly, these are my people. They look like me. They talk like me. They eat the same foods. They're from the same cultures. You ever been to a church where you walk in and everybody looks at you and you realize you're really not welcome? Yeah, a lot of people. That's weird. What is it, a closed system? I mean, what's that all about? I, don't, I, don't, I just don't appreciate it because I don't see it in Scripture. I can only be with people like me. And I've told you before that I have a Sicilian background. I don't know if I want, would want a whole church filled with Sicilians, okay? Just saying. <laughs> Little dig at my own people, okay? I like the, the diversity in that. Now, the caveat to this is, let me just say this, the caveat is language. And we talked about the Spanish ministry. And our preacher-teacher, his desire is to bring, and it's going to be a challenge, bring the family, the Spanish family, to integrate into Calvary Chapel Crossfields because we're all one. And maybe God will give somebody the gift of tongues where they can uh, actually blurt out uh, the language that the person is you know, as they're engaging in. That happens. It happened at Pentecost with Peter. Uh, maybe we can use other things to uh, bring the closeness together. So we never want a group not to be reached based on language or distance. So what we do is we, do, we support ministries that bring them into the fold, right, to help us to become one. Again, I'm just going to say it's not politically correct. But the idea that only whites can reach whites, blacks can reach blacks, addicts can reach addicts, it's silly. And it's not according to the scripture. If we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can reach whoever. No matter how different, no matter how diverse they are. Amen? So you all agree with me. (laughs) So 2,000 years later, why does some in the church try to segregate what God has called together in unity? Okay. Verse 11, he says, therefore, remember. In other words, remember what you were. Remember that salvation was a free gift to you. Remember, understand what God wants from you now. You ever see this in the world where um, you're working with somebody in your job, and maybe they're even a lazy employee, and they get promoted because they do the do, and the upper echelon likes them, and they, all of a sudden they're promoted, and they want you to do triple work now even though before they were promoted, you know, you see this in the world. Somebody comes into money, somebody has some type of worldly benefit, 
and they start to become prideful, like they forget who they were. Well, that has no place in the church. It really doesn't. No matter what we get, no matter what we do, no matter how God has blessed us, that we don't forget who we were and where we come from, because that's where pride sets in. And I've seen this in a, in a weird kind of stage in Christianity where I've arrived now. Look at me. I'm great. You're still, you know. And I was never like that. I mean, it's not true. But he's making sure they remember where they were and how they got here and who it was that brought them here. Again, the underlying theme is reconciliation to God and to others. Division is a distraction. Verses 11 through 12, he says to them, the Apostle Paul, and I'm, I'm just pulling out words here, key words. He says, you were Gentiles, you were without Christ, you were without God, you were without a covenant, you were without hope, you were aliens and strangers, you were destined for judgment, and, and Jews who continued to keep the law, same thing, because they couldn't, nobody can keep the Ten Commandments. You know how I know? Because on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you even think these bad thoughts, you've committed that sin in your heart, even though you didn't actually do it. What does that tell us? That we need a Savior. Right? We need a Savior. I think what can be frightening is that Gentiles back then and religious people today who think they're going to get to heaven by their own merits or because of a religion, because of men who lead some religion and start changing rules and tell you what to do and what not to do. So if you go from one religion to the other, how do you know who's telling the truth? Even in Christianity, you can go from one church to another and have all these different rules and all these different doctrines. You know what the answer is? That's why we got brighter lights. So you could read your Bibles better. Look up. <laughs> we did our lighting project, right? So if I start saying some wacky stuff, you can say, no, 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 that's not in the Scripture. It's all good, right? So this is what happens. There's some that are there. And today, even today, you look around, praying, fasting, good works, rituals, but they're not saved. They're just not. You can be doing those things right now. And maybe you came into this church because somebody said, hey, you should check out this church. And now you're at a crossroads. So what do you need to do? You need to go into the Word of God and seeing if all those things... Yeah, but my religious leader, my rabbi, my priest, my pastor, my imam told me that I should do this and I'll get to heaven. Okay, but what does God say? What does God say? There's just as many religions and divisions as there are differences of people in the world. You have to look for the truth. I've got to tell you something. That was me. As, as far as like the big three of religions, I was in one of the big three. And I thought I was getting to heaven because I was a whatever. Being born again now, I look back and realize I'm so glad I didn't die in that state. Because <laughs> it wouldn't have been good. False sense of security. That's what religion gives. You think you're doing good. I did something wrong, so I have to go to church on Sunday, and maybe I should give a little extra today because my sin's over the weekend. Boy, was I partying. So i got to write a bit more zeros at the end of it. Oh, I feel so much better. Do you really think God works like that? I have to go and confess more. I need to be the last one online because it's going to take me an hour to tell all my sins. Do you really think God works like that? And are you, who are you telling your sins to, a man? 1 John 1, 9. God's always faithful to receive that confession. We go to him. There's a lot of sincerely religious people in this world, but they're sincerely wrong, and they're sincerely deceived. 
I could, I could deceive myself. I could believe something. I could crinkle my face and go, oh, I really feel this. And I'm so sincere. And you can see the sincerity. And I, I have the sincerity. But I could be sincerely wrong and find out later that the facts show something otherwise. Don't let that be you in your spiritual life. Don't wait until the end when your heart stops, beat, stops beating to figure out that somebody led you down the wrong path. Go back into the Word. You know what's amazing? Islam... Catholicism, Protestantism, Judaism all use what? The Bible. But they pick and choose what they want to believe and what they don't want to believe. But they all have some sort of anchor to the scripture. Right? They have other books that men wrote over the years. But they use the scripture in some form or another. So heck, why not go with the whole scripture and see what that says? Verse 13. He says, but now in Christ, you who once were afar off have been made near by the blood of Christ. He says, but now. Remember in verse 4, but God? These are very powerful. Everyone is far off before they come to Christ, an eternity away from God. The only thing that brings us near to God is the blood of Christ and nothing else. And listen, it goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the, God said that sin is, is just so offensive to me that only shed blood can atone for sins all the way up through the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, and then Jesus Christ who gave his life for the remission of our sins. And by the way, we are now at but now because of but God. But God brings us to but now. That's a good thing. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we have access by one spirit to the Father. There's two words in here that are very, very powerful. One is peace. Everybody loves peace. I just want peace. I just need peace in my life. The more chaotic life becomes, especially in the Northeast, we want peace. Even the word feels good, peace. It sounds nice. Then there's another word, enmity. And these two words are against each other. Enmity is this, this horrific relation. It's fighting. It's warring. Actually, um, in, in, the, in the dictionary, it, it implies uh, far worse. So you have enmity on one hand and peace on the other. Who brings our peace? It's Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. And here's, check it out. Here's the thing. We can be, again, sincerely religious, as I was many years and I was at enmity with God, and I didn't realize it. That is a frightening place to be. That's why it's very important that the Word of God gets disseminated so everybody can know the truth about the free gift of salvation. Taking that enmity, that peace is more powerful, and it destroys the enmity. I was recently talking to somebody about the, the bodily systems, the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic nervous system, and how the part that brings calmness and homeostasis, the parasympathetic, is actually more powerful than the sympathetic. Sympathetic is more fight or flight. You can't stay like that too long because you'll burn out. But the parasympathetic is supposed to take over and calm you down. 
And that's what we're supposed to actually normally reside or work in. Sympathetic is designed for if a lion is chasing you or somebody's trying to rob you or whatever, you've got to climb a mountain, somebody's making you do it. So peace, peace is very important. Now the second part, okay, we talked about reconciliation. The second part to this is restoration, indicating that something was once good but now damaged. You ever see somebody who comes in, is a beautiful house, it's gorgeous, and then there's water damage, and everything's messed up. You need a restoration company to come in and fix the place and make it like it was before. Well, what ruined mankind? Sin. And sin caused division. And here, God does a restorative work. You see, even the anthropologist that's not a Christian, and I've done a lot of reading on this, the anthropologists will say that we all came from either the North African, Middle Eastern type area, and that you can take the DNA and trace it all back to like an original family. Well, that's what the Bible says. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Took you guys 2,000 years to figure that out, but the Bible said it a long time ago. We all are in the same family. Yes, we look very different. Yes, we talk different. Yes, we eat different foods. But there's more things among human beings that joins us than separates us. Most of the stuff is it's ancillary. They're minor changes. And sin separated the first family. I normally don't get political, but I don't like identity politics. And I see a lot of it. And I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, our country is in crisis. I believe that. It's starting to unravel. People are at each other's throats. There's different groups. And um, there's this talk about the possibility of the United States being divided up into regions. Because the, the unity that we once had, we don't have anymore. You know, these politicians, and, and I believe, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but on the federal level, their design is to get us fighting amongst ourselves so they can continue pilfering from the, the money bag. They're a bunch of Judases is what they are. You know, I'm female, you're male, I'm black, you're white, I'm heterosexual, you're homo. Oh, come on already. How, how much are we going to divide ourselves? I mean, even, I, I, I laugh, being from Italian descent, you have Italians all the way up by the Swiss and French border who look very different from me. And they have different foods and different dialects. All Italians stick together. No, they don't. Well, all black people on Africa stick together. No, they don't. You know how many wars there are in Africa? What we keep doing is we keep looking at ourselves and finding something different so that we can separate ourselves and then say, I'm better than you. And that's the state of the world. But God wants to bring unity, and he's hopefully doing it through his church so the rest of the world sees that we do and say, well, how do you guys do it? And there's a great witness there. But unfortunately, there is a lot of division in the church, and in a lot of ways, we're not setting a good example. I say often, being a beekeeper, bees are more, they seem smarter sometimes than the human race, because, you know, no matter, today's the, this week was the season for me to get my bees ready to go again and, and to clean out the hive boxes and do different things. And like I've always said, especially in the cold weather, I lift up the top. And the bees are in a ball. Actually, when you go to kind of lift uh, one of the frames, you, they almost seem like they're stuck together. But their little legs are latched onto another one little legs, and there's thousands of them that are in a ball. And you've got to be gentle with them because, you know, they want to stay together. 
And any bee who decides, I don't like the rest of you, and they're kind of out on their own, they freeze to death and you die and you find them in the spring, by the way. But they all stick together. They all ball up so they can collectively keep warm. You know, in, in the summertime when I lift up the box and they're out moving and it's warm so they don't have to get that close. Um, do you know that bees have tongues? Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've seen little, the little bee tongues. They're little pink tongues and they lap like a dog. <laughs> bee tongues. I learned something new. Bee tongues. And a lot of times when I lift up the cover, they're actually sharing honey and they're tongue to tongue. You know, if you put food in the hive, eventually the whole hive will have tasted that food because they share, they're sharers. You know, they don't let your, they don't let your buddy die over there. I never lift up the hive and see one bee on his own in a lounge chair with his feet up smoking a cigarette. It just doesn't happen, you know? Never. In five or six years of doing this. And I've met millions of bees in my life, by the way. Where was I? <laughs> okay. Let's go back. Let's go back. Jesus is our peace, right? We have peace that he is, and we have peace that he gives. And this is crucial to understand. Jesus shed blood, brought peace. And that peace was the vehicle to the restoration of ties from man to God and from man to man. Again, man to God sometimes is easier than the man to man thing. But God says, if you can't get the man to man thing, something's lacking in the man to God thing. And ladies, he meant females too, so you're not exempt from this. So even in the Old Testament, there were peace offerings. However, one of the animals had to die to make that peace between God and man. And Jesus fulfilled that peace offering by shedding his blood. Now let's talk about peace, because this is an awesome subject. And if you've come here and you have a, a test, you have to go to the doctor, you have a procedure, your business is failing financially, your marriage is in trouble... This is what you really need to focus on because this is the way for you to have that peace. And that peace helps in the restoration process. So the first scripture I'm going to read, I'm going to cover three quick aspects of peace, is Romans 5, 1 through 2. Romans 5, 1 through 2. It's titled, Peace with God. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we had enmity, the natural man is not a spiritual man or woman, and there's an enmity, there's a beef, so to speak, between God and man. There's an issue, whatever you want to call it in your vernacular. However, Jesus came to bring peace. Second scripture, John 14, verse 27. Jesus spoke, and the, the gospel writers and the Bible writers spoke a lot about peace. John 14, 27. Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your, not, let your heart let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So Jesus is making a dichotomy, a differentiation between the world's peace and the peace that he gives. He's saying, listen, make sure you understand, it's not the peace that you're used to. Well, let's go to the third scripture, and we'll elaborate a little bit more. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. 
The Apostle Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. You want to know my translation for the peace that surpasses all understanding? People say that a lot. It doesn't make any sense. There you go. This peace that doesn't make any sense is the thing that's going to settle your hearts and your mind. In the world, nobody understands this peace because, because in the world, the natural man or woman has peace when there's money in the bank account, they're not fighting with their spouse, the kids are behaving and getting good grades. Should I go on? The business is doing well. The in-laws aren't giving you any trouble. I can do this all day long. The world's peace is based on externals. God's peace is based on internals. And you'll find that when far-reaching ministry comes next Sunday, they'll talk about the war-torn regions in Sudan and such, that Christians just got their church bombed, just got um, a machete attack in their village. You know, they come back when the dust clears and the, and the embers are there from the church, and they go back to the place and they start rejoicing and singing praises and start the rebuilding process. That is the peace that makes no sense to the world or the natural person. However, it's the peace that God gives. Unfortunately, in Western Christianity, we've become weak spiritually because we're listening to the prosperity gospel. Basically, oh, they do the same thing the world does. Things are great because God is going to make you healthy and wealthy and everything's going to go just right. It's a lie. The peace has to surpass all understanding and it's based on internals, not externals. That's junk food. It sounds good. It, it gives us a little boost, but there's no substance to it. That's spiritual junk food. Verse 18. He tells us that there's pretty much no more separation between the two. Jews and Gentiles. Again, fill in the blanks today in the church or whatever. There shouldn't be any division. Um, go, let's go back 2,000 years. In Roman society, again, the world was divided and mostly between Jew and Gentile. Even the courts of the temple, and I've been covering this in 1 Kings, what the temple looked like in the different courts. These courts were concentric circles. There was the temple, the actual building, and then there was the court of the priests, right? Concentric circles, let's keep going, same center, further, bigger gate, further out. The court of the priests, the court of Israel, the court of women, and not to be outdone by the court of the Gentiles. Even inside of the temple was the holy place and then the most holy place where the holy place priests could minister to, but the most holy place only the high priest once a year. And that divided God's physical presence, the Shekinah glory, from the rest of the people. So division, division, division. Even, let's keep going, a lot of the Romans despised the Jews, and you saw that in the conquering um, the Roman-Jewish wars of 67 to 71 or 72, where the temple was destroyed. The Romans destroyed the Jewish temple with a vengeance. They had a hatred, an ethnic hatred for the Jews, not to be outdone by the Jewish leaders and religious people that when they were going to the market, they would come home and wash multiple times. And this is a fact. You can read this in history books. Because in case a dirty Gentile walked past them and got their dust on them, they would be defiled, so they had to wash themselves. You see that? We don't see that in America? Oh, sure we do. Sure we do. 
And I think that our leaders, some of them are perpetrating it. Some of them are trying to keep us together as a society because we're all looking at somebody else with some type of disdain. Shouldn't be that way in the church. So what I'm telling you is that back in the day, God did an amazing thing to bring Jew and Gentiles together. I'm telling you today that God can do the same thing in the Church of America. Because he's doing it overseas. You know what's funny thing about persecution? When Christians are being beheaded and being persecuted, they don't go, are you a Yazidi? Are you an Eastern Orthodox? Are you a Catholic? Are you? They're just huddling together and they're praying together. Here, it's a different story because we have our ease. Persecution is an amazing thing to actually meld the church to come together, start focusing on the word and prayer instead of our differences. So the miracle that God did back then, he can still do today. Last few verses, verse 19 in Ephesians 2. He says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. So the third part is rebuilding. Rebuilding. If you have a home that's dilapidated and beams are falling down and there's rot and there's termites, to try to build onto that home, you're going to just infect the rest of the structure eventually. The problems with the old structure are going to affect the new structure. It's no difference in the spiritual realm. Tear down the old dilapidated structure of our false ideas, our false doctrines, our racism, our division, our disunity, that stuff got to be knocked down. And a whole new foundation is built with Christ as the cornerstone. And that's that habitation, that spiritual habitation that he's speaking about here. The best way to destroy a church is through cliques and factions. I've seen it. I mean, i got to be honest with you. Pastor Vinny comes up here and, and people say, Oh, Pastor Vinny, what a great message. Oh, Pastor Paul taught Psalms. It really ministered to my heart. I don't think to myself... These guys are getting too popular. I think I might have to bump them off. <laughs> I never think that, really. I'm actually delighted. Pastor Vinny, Pastor Paul, and Pastor I. And Pastor I. <laughs> Slow down, Joe. The three of us are very different. We have very different backgrounds. Our ministry style is very different. Our preaching style is very different. But you know what? It works. Very, very different. If we were in the world and we weren't Christians, I don't know that the three of us would be hanging out together. But the Lord does an amazing work, and you can take so much diversity and make it work. We actually complement each other. I'll give you one more scripture as we close. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. I quoted Psalm 23. I quoted Revelation 21. This is the Apostle Peter, one of his works, um, 2, 4 through 5. He says, Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones, believers, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is that cornerstone. He's that anchoring stone. 
After that, the apostles and prophets can be built on that anchor and build a foundation. My house has a block foundation, and then wood is built on top of it. So you see this, this foundation, right? The message, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, is the same message. You start going through the prophets, prophetic books, just the prophetic books, you'll see they're all saying the same thing. The rest of us are stones that are built onto that. All important, but maybe none standing out too much. The more I read the Bible, the more I see things in layers or strata. Let's look at this, this discussion about a spiritual house. Number one, in the temple, God promised that his physical presence would literally dwell, even though he's omnipresent. There would be, a, in between the cherubim, he would dwell. And his people knew when they looked at the temple that God, amazingly, his physical presence was there. So he dwelt in a house. Two, God the Son took up dwelling in the form of a man. He made it more personal. It wasn't just an inanimate structure. He took the form of a man. He was fully God and fully man. The deity of God resided in a man. And in the transfiguration, you saw God's glory go past the skin, the muscles, the nerves, to the point of almost blinding the people around him. Three, God also gives the illustration of dwelling in the church, not the building. You see those old horror movies? Before I was a Christian, I used to watch that stuff. And people would run to the church, the sanctuary. The church is just a building. Without this, look at yourself in the mirror, without people in the church, Christians, if this place is empty, God doesn't really necessarily dwell in here. Right? It's collectively through the church. Four. Now let's make it real personal. We also know God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of us as believers. That's amazing in itself. And then things start to happen. You know, when I look at the Apostle Paul's methodology, it reminds me of either boot camp, Navy SEALs training, the police academy, where you take individuals break them down of their pride, of their self-sufficiency, of their self-centeredness. And then when they're broken down, you build them back up as a team. I, I can't f forget the image of the Navy SEALs in the ocean. And their all arms are interlocked, and some of them are falling, and their buddies have to lift them up and keep them from drowning. You know why they're doing that? What, are they weak? They can't sit in the water? They haven't slept for two or three days or more. That's their training. They're completely exhausted. And without themselves using as, a, as a, a unit, as one, somebody's going to drown. Someone's going to die. You never unlock your arms with your buddy. Should be better in the church. Because we're held to a higher standard and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul, again, get off the junk food of the spiritual teaching. Oh, I just want to feel good. I want to be ministered to. Well, this didn't feel good when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians at times. He had to break them down of their false doctrine, of their self-sufficiency, their self. And he had to build them up in a collective unit called the church, with God being the center of it. Matthew 7, Jesus said that a house built on sand will be destroyed. The elements will get it, and it'll... it'll, it'll you've seen it. You've seen movies of this, right? When, when the shores are hit, if the house isn't built on those piers... It's built on something flimsy and the hurricanes and the water comes. That house just starts to break apart. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, A house divided itself cannot stand. 
A lot of allusions to a house, spiritual house. I got to tell you, if I went home and I pulled into my driveway, I saw a hole in the foundation, a big hole in the foundation of my house, and there was one stone kind of sitting there going, I don't want to be part of this anymore. You know, I want to shine brighter than all those other blocks. I say, hey, little buddy, let's talk about this. You know, the elements are going to get in. It's going to ruin my house. Well, that probably would never happen. But the thing is, as Christians, we're blocks, and we help to make up that spiritual structure, that edifice. Loners, rebels, lookers, gawkers. Oh, I want to see this event and that event, but they never stay anywhere to plant roots. That's not what God calls us to do. We're not moving stones. We're living stones, and we're built on this foundation. Only two instances I find in the Scripture, and maybe you can tell me three or four, where we're to remove ourselves and have actual division. Number one is when false doctrine is taught. The Bible commands us to put out the person who's teaching heretical doctrine. It only serves to confuse the saints and, and cause them not to be closer to their God because they don't understand. Two is a diverse umbrella of divisive people in the church that refuse to repent, going around causing those factions that I spoke about before. But other, other than that, there should be unity. So, what were the Ephesians to look to? Their role. Their role. What are we to look to? As we look at reconciliation, restoration, rebuilding, where do I fit in? I'm going to tell you something. Everybody in this room can fit in somewhere. But I have no talents. But I have no training. I've never done ministry. Are you a willing vessel? We can use you. We'll sign you up for something. So the question is, are we going to look at this book about something that was written 2,000 years ago just as a history book? Because it is a history book, but that's only one layer. And then put it away, put it on our coffee table, let the dust collect on it. Looks nice. Look at the borders. Look at the gold filigree. Or are we going to look into the word and say, this is the living word. The Bible tells me that. And it's profitable for correction, rebuke, discipline, training, so that we can be edified and do what the Lord has called us to do and, and have our part in the reconciliation, restoration, and rebuilding pro process and then actually do some things arm in arm with other believers and just glorify God because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. What a blessing it is, Lord, that...